Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Marianne Wiggins just wrote a book that's one of those big, chonky, you know, nearly 600-page books about America and all its flaws. It's called Properties of Thirst, and before she finished it, she had a stroke. And it was up to her daughter, Lara Porzak, to go through all her notes and pages and notebooks to help find the ending. They both joined NPR's Scott Simon to talk about the novel, and there's a moment deep into the interview that really touches on that kind of sad and scary feeling when you realize that your parents, these huge figures in your life, are mortal. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey, streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Marianne Wiggins' new novel, Properties of Thirst, is sprawling, expansive, and lyrical. It's a series of love missives about families, fortunes, and the American West set in the opening months of the Second World War, and it's melodic and clear-eyed about America's offenses, too. The fact that we can read this novel at all is a kind of masterpiece. Marianne Wiggins endured a massive stroke in 2016 when she was just a few chapters short of finishing Properties of Thirst, Her daughter, the photographer, Laura Porzak, helped guide the story to the end. And Marianne Wiggins, the Pulitzer Prize finalist and author of John Dollar and Evidence of Things Unseen and other great novels, joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. As does her daughter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Scott. Marianne, tell us about your protagonist, Rocky Rhodes. He's a big deal back east. Why does he want to come west and become a rancher? He's a big man. I make a point of of saying that he always feels cramped. I think he came west for wiggle room, just to move his shoulders around, to reinvent Mm -hmm. himself. He comes from, let's let our listeners in on on what we would know if we were reading the book. He's a very, very wealthy man. He inherited a lot of money, and he's trying to shrug his family off. So he goes west. And we maybe need to remind ourselves that this is when the West was really the West. That's where a lot of people kind of washed up or or went in search of new lives. Well, they still do, Scott. I'm speaking to you from California now, and I can tell you, yeah, because if you can't do it in California, you're going to fall off the edge. Let me let me ask you about one of my favorite characters, because um, the nation is pitched into war. An incarceration camp for Japanese-American citizens is opened adjacent to the ranch. Rocky doesn't like that, does he? No. But I don't think very many Americans knew about the incarceration camp, and I had not been taught it in my high school education, in my high school or grade school. I wasn't taught that we rounded up domestic enemies, potential enemies, on the basis of their race. And I was affronted. How dare my American education not teach me about a landmark 
decision on the part of our nation. And, and I'm fascinated by your character, a lawyer, Department of Interior lawyer named Schiff. Yes. He grows to quickly loathe his work and feels a sense of uh, identification with the people that he's uh, incarcerating. Well, you buried the lead. He's Jewish. I was hoping you would deliver the lead, but yeah. I'm very generous of you. Thank you, Scott. Um, I mean, he's really torn up about this. He doesn't think that these citizens of the United States were part of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and he doesn't see any reason why they should be incarcerated. Nevertheless, he's in charge of the camp. So it's someone who's facing the wall of his soul. Can I... uh... Can I turn to events of 2016? You can turn any way you want, Scott. All right. <laughs> well, uh, do, do you recall what happened in 2016? Has it come back to you now? or My daughter, Lara, should probably take over the narration because what happened to me affected my brain, and I don't really—I had a stroke. Mm-hmm. So I live now with my— adult daughter who is sitting beside me giving me the worst look in the world. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry. Now we're, we're, we happen to be chatting over a Zoom connection, <laughs> and I thought, I, I just judging from a distance. Yeah, you don't I know her, her face, Scott. It's true. All right, you got no, me there. I am All in, right. in the care of my daughter, um, and I feel guilty as a mother to have put her in this position, but she has saved my life, Yes. And she saved the book first. Then she saved my life. Yeah, first things first. Yeah. Lara, let me turn to you. Um, you saw a name on the hospital bed. I did. Which I saw. <laughs> well, let me get you to tell the story. Well, it, it was the third night, perhaps, or maybe even the first yeah. night. We Marianne was in the intensive care unit for a while, and the manufacturer's name of many hospital beds is Stryker, spelled the same exact way as her character Stryker, S-T-R-Y-K-E-R. Wow. And that moment of magical realism just gave me the strength to power through and say to myself, surely this is a sign, this must be, this will happen, the book will be finished. Yeah. And then when Marianne was paralyzed and in a comatose state, still had not even opened her eyes. In the middle of a dream state, she just lifted her right hand and was clearly writing. She writes everything longhand, has always written longhand. You're not the best typist, no offense. No, yeah. I, I, I know I'm not. I, uh, neither was Hemingway. <laughs> Take that. Take your typing school and, you know. Uh, Marianne, there is no nice way to say this. How hard was this experience for you of being bereft of this extraordinary, I don't mind saying genius for words, that you have? Well, I I had no sense that I was bereft. Mm -hmm. My sense of self was based on my former capabilities. So it wasn't like suffering a wound that I could see, Mm. nor did I have anyone this is very important. No, nor did I have a medical diktat saying you'll never write again. In fact, a doctor swooped in and said, do not let this crisis go to waste. Yeah. And that was stunning. 
Um, Lara, you say in, beautifully done afterward that your your mother can be <laughs> a prize fighter with words. Yes. Uh, and at times your relationship had been painful. I yes. think painful is exactly the word that, that you That used. is the word. Did holding the hand of your mother and working together help you see into her soul in a whole new way? Absolutely. The experience post-stroke of reading every single notebook and reading her thought process, because again, she wrote longhand, when I was trying to search for the ending and search for the ending and see if there were any breadcrumbs, any notes there for me to help her, um, that was truly profound. I, I, for a child to go through that thought process of a parent um, while taking care of that parent, and I would help you all day long, Mom, and then at night, you know, by a burning candle, it was really that strange, flip through all your notebooks and watch your brain work. Um, it was such an honor to be able to do that, but it was also heartbreaking because your brain was suffering very much at that time. Yeah. Um, but it was like having mom back. So it was a beautiful process. Hard, very difficult, but beautiful. Laura Porzak and her mother, Marianne Wiggins, in Venice, California, Marianne's new novel, Properties of Thirst. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be like that at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. 